This is a When Walls Can Talk network podcast. If you're like me and have had an interest in creating your own podcast, but don't really know where to get started, let me tell you about Anchor. Anchor is the completely free creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Once you've finished recording, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard across all podcast streaming platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership right from your very first episode. It's everything that you need to make and distribute a podcast all in one place. To get started, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, my name is Jeremy Haig, psychic medium, tarot reader, and proud nerd of the occult and the spiritual. I've been talking to the dead since before I can remember. Hearing their stories and listening to their lessons radically changed my life and taught me to become more curious and peel back the layers of the world around me. On this podcast, I invite you on a journey as we discuss spirituality hot topics with specialists and practitioners from across the witchcraft community, pull and explore monthly collective tarot readings, and recount lost or forgotten paranormal stories from around the world. This is When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. You stand accused of a crime you didn't commit and are faced with an impossible decision. You can plead your innocence, a task literally impossible to prove, and will still most assuredly be found guilty and sentenced to death by execution. Or you could admit your so-called wrongdoings, of which you've been falsely accused, apologize, and implicate others for good measure. Only then will you go free. This was the horrific decision that faced over 100 women and several men in the dark days surrounding the Salem Witch Trials. The Salem Witch Trials took place between February 1692 and May of 1693 in the small town of Salem, Massachusetts. Built upon the foundation of Puritan paranoia surrounding the supernatural, misguided religious fervor, and a justice system that valued repentance over truth, the trials remain one of mankind's darkest examples of our potential for cruelty and hatred. Salem was settled in 1626 by Puritans, a group of English Protestants who emigrated to America for religious freedom, only to find themselves guilty of the same religious oppression upon one another less than 70 years later. Life in Salem at the time was harsh, strict, and isolated. Battles with their indigenous neighbors and French settlers were almost constant, which developed into a near-constant fear of starvation, disease, and an intense distrust for their fellow townsfolk. 
For a little more context into the priorities of the 17th century Puritan America, in 1641 the Puritan Legal Code was created and established the society's hierarchy of possible crimes. The very first and highest on this list was idolatry, or the worship of any person, place, or thing in the place of the Puritan god, for which the punishment was death. The second on the list was the practice of witchcraft, again for which the punishment was death. The list continues on with blasphemy as number three, murder finds itself below all of these at number four, poisoning number five, bestiality number six, and so on. To make matters worse, 1692 brought one of the very worst coldest winters on record. It was in this harsh cultural landscape that something truly bizarre began to occur. It began in January 1692, when two cousins, nine-year-old Elizabeth Paris and 11-year-old Abigail Williams, started behaving very strangely. These two girls were the daughter and niece of Reverend Samuel Paris, Salem's first ordained minister. The strange behavior observed by the girls included sudden odd sounds and screaming, strange bodily contortions, and constantly throwing objects. The girls also reported an invisible dark being biting and pinching them. A physician was asked to examine the girls and could find nothing physically wrong with them, but diagnosed the girls as being affected, quote, under an evil hand, and claimed the cause was supernatural. It should be noted that Salem only had one doctor at the time, and it was more than likely that he could read, but could not write. Nevertheless, Puritans already believed that the devil had the ability to wreak havoc in the world through human agents. These agents were called witches, who blighted nature, conjured fiendish and dangerous apparitions, and tormented children. As the news of the attacks swept through the village, soon more and more people appeared to be affected by this unseen, quote, evil hand, including 11-year-old Anne Putnam. Records report over 12 women and girls contorting their bodies in bizarre and impossible ways, having violent fits, and complaining of prickling skin. On February 9th, 1692, Elizabeth and Abigail and others accused three women of causing their extreme outbursts after pressure from Jonathan Corwin and John Hawthorne, both magistrates, into revealing the people affecting them. John Hawthorne's house still stands in Salem today, known as the Witch House, a macabre testament and well-loved pilgrimage location dedicated to one of the darkest blots in American history. We will come back to the Witch House. On February 29, 1692, the authorities arrested the three women accused, Sarah Good, a poor pregnant mother with a small daughter, Sarah Osborne, who had long been absent from church, and Tichuba, an enslaved woman in Elizabeth Paris's own home. Tichuba denied harming the girls, but shortly after admitted to practicing witchcraft, saying, quote, The devil came to me and bid me serve him. Her testimony in the Salem Witch Trials is the very longest, and while many consider the very real possibility that this confession was forced, it does detail some very strange visions. In a particularly dramatic moment of the trial, Tichuba claimed to be struck blind by the devil, a punishment for speaking so candidly of the dangers witches posed to Puritan society. She also added that witches in Salem were purposefully working to undermine the Puritans, and then proceeded to accuse the other two women, Good and Osborne, of having forced her to do what she did. Osborne and Good both loudly proclaimed their innocence. 
Osborne sadly died in prison, and Good's husband turned against her in court, testifying that she was a witch. Even Good's own four-year-old daughter was forced to testify against her. Good gave birth to her daughter in prison, who sadly did not survive, and Good herself was convicted and hanged shortly after. Tichiba was held in custody for a year and three months when she was finally allowed to go free, the very last of the accused to be released. The trials of these three women was only the beginning of the wave of spiritual paranoia that would sweep the little seaside hamlet of Salem, Massachusetts. Soon many others, like Tichiba, made false confessions under extreme pressure to save themselves from public execution. One accused witch was told by authorities that she would be hanged if she did not confess and freed if she did. There was no interest in investigating the charges or questioning the wild claims that were being brought against the women. On May 27, 1692, the Court of Oyer and Terminer was established by Willem Phipps, the governor of Massachusetts. Eight girls from Salem were afflicted with symptoms of witchcraft and came forward to make accusations against the women who they claimed afflicted them. In the first trial of this court, Bridget Bishop, an older woman of the community that many considered to be an immoral gossip and was generally not liked by the Puritan society, was determined guilty of witchcraft and became the first to be executed. Between the months of July and September, 18 more people were found guilty and executed including four men, a rare occurrence in witch trials of antiquity. One of these men was George Burrow, a Harvard-educated minister who was accused by other alleged witches of being their mastermind. The claims made in court ranged from just bizarre to downright outrageous. Several alleged witches claimed Burrow was literally biting them in court while testifying, and the court determined that the bite marks allegedly found on the victims allegedly matched Burroughs perfectly. Many people in the court, not even just the accusers, claimed to see spirits in the courtroom. One girl claimed the faces she saw were that of Burroughs' own deceased wives, colored red as blood and thirsty for justice to be served to their former husband. Finally, the possibility was suggested that Burroughs was gifted an invisibility cloak from the devil himself, a theory brought up by the Chief Justice himself. Before being executed, Burrow gave an emotional speech where he recited the Lord's Prayer without any mistakes, a thing witches were not supposed to be able to do, and sowed the seeds of doubt in the crowd gathered to watch his death. The court accepted any and all evidence brought forward, including some dubious spectral evidence, and almost all the trials stood heavily on the testimony of children. In fact, throughout the entirety of the Salem Witch Trials, all of the accusers were women between the ages of 9 and 20 years of age. Historically, most witch trials around the world saw men doing the vast majority of accusations. To make things even more complicated, many of the jurors in these trials were relatives of the accusers, completely compromising their objectivity and ability to provide a fair trial. Those who dared to speak out against the trials, such as Judge Nathaniel Saltonstall, found themselves under intense scrutiny and suspicion. On October 3, 1692, Increase Mather, a Puritan minister, implored the court to not consider spectral evidence in the trials. Accusations were now beginning to spread far outside Salem to neighboring communities, and even the most powerful figures could no longer escape the claws of public fear and suspicion. Only when the governor of Massachusetts' very own wife, Mary Phipps, 
was accused and brought in for interrogation, ironically the wife of the very same William Phipps, who established the court of Oyer Intermeter, were the trials finally suspended. Sentences were amended, prisoners released, and arrests halted. The court of Oyer Intermeter was replaced with the Superior Court of Judicature, which was not permitted to consider testimonies of spectral evidence in trials in the future. By the spring of 1693, over 100 people had been imprisoned, and 20 people were executed, 14 of whom were women. While accounts vary, it is also estimated another 13 people perished while in jail on accusations of witchcraft. Of those executed, not a single one ever admitted to being guilty of any form of witchcraft, and almost all were not given a proper burial. The majority were tossed into unmarked graves in some unknown location nearby. Many theorize that these graves may lie on Gallows Hill, just northeast of Salem, which already has the reputation of being wildly haunted. In the end, wild theories have been made as to why the Salem witch trials were allowed to occur in the first place. One theory comes from Harvard PhD student Emily Oster, who proposed an economic explanation for what occurred. She theorized that the Little Ice Age that occurred between 1550 and 1800, which intensified again between 1680 and 1730, caused extreme financial and economic stress on the people of Salem and encouraged them to blame one another for their struggles. The second theory comes from behavioral scientist Linda Capriel, who suggested that the girls were exposed to a fungus called ergot, which can be found in grains like rye, and causes convulsive ergotism. Symptoms of this exposure include hallucinations similar to those of LSD, muscle contractions that resembles seizures, vertigo, and crawling or tingling sensations. In addition to rye being prevalent in the area, the humidity and storage times of rye created a high likelihood of ergot development. However, the girls showed no other physical signs that typically accompany convulsive ergotism and are more or less impossible to miss, such as disintegrating fingertips, so this theory tends to fall flat. The third and most accepted theory is that mass hysteria is to blame for the majority of what took place. It is fairly accepted at this point that hysteria is a good description of what took place between the people living in Salem during the time period and fueled the fervor and intensity that the trials reached. The fourth theory comes from one of the members of the community itself during the time of the trials, a merchant by the name of Robert Califf, who accused Reverend Samuel Paris of exploiting the trials for social and political gain, and of forcing his slave Tichiba to plead guilty in order to use the resulting paranoia to seize back his diminishing power in Salem. What we do know is that adults accepted wild, dangerous, and outrageous accusations from small children as hard evidence in court, leading to the cruel, publicly sanctioned murder of at least 20 people. The Salem witch trials echo through time, a dark reminder of the dangers of scapegoating and the power fear has over the human mind.
Hey, Paranormal Weirdos. I truly hope you're enjoying this week's episode so far. If you're enjoying When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, I humbly welcome you to consider making a financial contribution to the When Walls Can Talk tip jar to ensure I can continue to create episodes like this one for seasons to come. Your financial support helps to cover operating costs like recording equipment, editing software, marketing materials, music rights, and helps with the purchase of books, historical publications, and research materials to ensure that every episode is as professional and as well-constructed as we possibly can. If you're interested in making a small contribution, and let me tell you that no amount is too little, please feel free to hop on over to PayPal where you can tip us through my email, Jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com or on Cash App through money sign Jeremy Hegg. That's money sign J-E-R-E-M-Y-H-A-I-G. There's also a support link in the show notes for this and every episode where you can support us directly as well. Thank you so much for listening to my little sales pitch and for sticking with me through this episode so far. And now, let's get back to the show. Among the most haunted buildings still standing in Salem is the Hawthorne Hotel. Established in 1925, the historic Hawthorne Hotel is situated in the heart of Salem. To date, over one million guests stay at the hotel, and many generations held their weddings, anniversaries, or prom parties in the Grand Ballroom. Since the hotel's grand opening in 1925, the Hawthorne Hotel has earned international acclaim for its beauty, and its ghosts. In 2007, Travelocity named it the fourth most haunted hotel in America, quite a feat. And in 2015, it was awarded the prestigious 2015 Best City Center Historic Award from the Historic Hotels of America. The Hawthorne has welcomed famous guests such as President George W. Bush and his wife Laura, General Colin Powell, and even actresses Bette Davis and Vanessa Redgrave. More recently, Jennifer Lawrence, Robert De Niro, and Bradley Cooper stayed at the Hawthorne while filming their movie, Joy. If you were to ask the Hawthorne's general manager, she'd probably tell you that the Hawthorne isn't haunted. She was quoted as saying in 2011 to the Boston Globe, quote, People tell us they feel things, but we don't have any documentation. But is that really true? Employees have claimed to experience the darker side of the hotel, and countless guests have done the same. The Hawthorne's history is an interesting one that begins long before the current property was constructed in 1925. And, as is the case with many haunted stories, the Hawthorne's past began with hopes and dreams and ended in flames. Seated at 18 Washington Square West, the Hawthorne's first identity was actually the Franklin Building. Designed and constructed by Samuel McIntyre in 1809, the plan was to create a universal building that could be utilized by various groups. After a year of building, the end result was a rectangular, hipped roof brick structure that caught the eye of every passerby. Even in the early 19th century, the Franklin was the center of Salem's budding central business district. It housed shops, offices for local businesses, and even residential apartments for those wealthy enough to afford luxury spaces. Unfortunately, as is the case with most prized buildings in the 18th and 19th centuries, the Franklin's future was to be plagued with much heartache. In 1845, a fire struck the property. Then again, in 1859, and finally in 1860, the Franklin building caught on fire for the third time. 
and, as they say, the third time's the charm. And in the Franklin's case, the third time proved too much, and the structure succumbed to the flames. The Salem Register best described the 1860 fire as, quote, an easterly gale was raging, and the fire progressed in spite of all the efforts to save it, until the noble structure, which had been one of our institutions for about 60 years, was a complete mess of ruins. Not to be done in, local architects sought to reconstruct the building in 1863, and it was in 1864 that the new Franklin building rose from the flames like a phoenix and proceeded to maintain its stronghold within Salem until the turn of the 20th century. It was at this time that approximately 1,100 local residents decided that Salem needed a beautiful hotel to attract newcomers into the city of Salem. They dreamed of a luxurious hotel that would entice the upper crust of society for a visit. The problem was, they wanted their dream hotel to take place in the fire-ravaged Franklin Building, a building that the Salem Marine Society technically claimed as home as well. Debates sparked, and ultimately the society agreed to give up their building, as long as the hotel builders allowed their new headquarters to be at the very top of the new hotel, and that its offices had to be an exact replica of the cabin from the Taria Topan, one of the vessels that they'd used during many travels to East India. The hoteliers agreed, and soon the Hawthorne Hotel was on its way to becoming a reality. Why the name Hawthorne? Well, you may have guessed it. The Hawthorne Hotel is named after none other than the author Nathaniel Hawthorne himself. What you may not have known is that the Hawthorne Hotel's location near the Salem Commons was a deliberate choice. The Hawthorne Hotel is situated near Nathaniel Hawthorne's birthplace on Union Street, the house on Mall Street, where Hawthorne penned a scarlet letter, and his childhood home on Herbert Street. When it comes to the Hawthorne Hotel, there's no mistaking that the hotel's namesake is a large part of its legacy. While the Hawthorne quickly garnered some major attraction in its early years, its notoriety really sprung up in the 1960s with the production of Bewitched. For anyone out there who has no idea what Bewitched is, in the TV show, Samantha, played by Lisbeth Montgomery, falls in love and marries a mortal, Darren Stevens, played by Dick York. But when Darren discovers Sam's true identity, he makes her promise to never use her magic again. Magic, mind you, that occurs when she twitches her nose. Throughout the series, Darren and Sam's relationship is one of back and forths as outside characters attempt to intercede and cause all sorts of comedic drama. When the townspeople of Salem found out that a witch show was coming to their home to film, there were some heavy critics. After the 1692 witch hysteria, they were tired of Salem's reputation being connected with witchcraft. Instead of winning out and excommunicating the cast and crew of Bewitched, a monument was erected at the crossing of Essex and Washington Streets in the show's honor. During the time of filming, both Elizabeth Montgomery and her co-star, Dick York, stayed at the Hawthorne through to the end of filming in the Salem area. It's believed that Elizabeth and her husband, the director of the show, William Asher, stayed in room 512. Bewitched even showcased Hawthorne's elevators in one of the show's most iconic scenes. For months after the show's airing, people rang the hotel to ask, are you the hotel where Bewitched filmed the elevator scene? The answer to that question was, and still is, yes, no matter how much the employees at the time must have grown tired hearing the same thing. Today, you can still find quite a bit of memorabilia from the show in the lobby of the hotel. In a strange twist of fate, the Hawthorne continued the Franklin Building's legacy in 1997. That October, amidst preparations for the hotel's annual Halloween ball, a small fire started in the basement. 
While no one was hurt, and even the damage to the hotel was quite limited, many have wondered if the threat of fire has not been somewhat responsible for the ghostly activity at the Hawthorne. In his book, The Ghosts of Salem, author Sam Beltrusis argued, it is possible that the psychic imprint from the cursed land's past may have caused what parapsychologists call an aura of disaster-fertile ground for the birthing of ghosts. According to several accounts over the years, the Hawthorne Hotel does indeed have a storied history of alleged paranormal activity. On the top floor, belonging to the Salem Marine Society, employees have claimed to see the ship's helm turning. Many attribute this eerie phenomenon to the sailors of long ago who once sailed the waters of Salem and traveled all over the world. Others up on the top floor have left and returned to find items usually locked up, strewn all over the room the next morning. Antique maps, charts, and other objects are most frequently the objects that have been misplaced. Are the ghosts of these sailors still lingering at the hotel? It would certainly seem so. Guests report hearing water faucets turn on and off, as well as toilets flushing mysteriously on their own. One woman staying at the hotel awoke in the dead of night to find her son cowering. When she asked him what was wrong, he claimed to have heard the disembodied voice of a child sobbing. According to various reports, room 325 and 612 are the most active at the Hawthorne Hotel. Phantom hands tug on the sheets in the middle of the night. Those who stay in room 612 often report seeing a ghostly woman parading about the room, checking out her near-translucent figure in the mirror. One particular employee refuses to work nights ever again. During his evening shift, after cleaning a room, he went to go get supplies and returned to find the room's entire configuration had changed. In the hotel's restaurant, the tavern, is a ship's wheel on display. Used in the steering of a seafaring vessel, this display will often turn back and forth, as if it is being controlled by one of the same Salem Sea Captains. Visitors have reported experiencing odd sensations near these rooms, as well as actually hearing ghostly voices. The hotel itself actually held a seance in 1990 to try to contact the spirit of legendary magician Harry Houdini. Guests have constantly and continually reported furniture moving all around on its own, strange sounds and smells, and ghostly sightings. The Hawthorne Hotel is often ranked one of the most haunted hotels in America, and for good reason. They say that there is no house in Salem more haunted than the Turner Ingersoll, better known to many as the House of the Seven Gables. The Turner Ingersoll has been given a variety of fates over the years, a variety of identities too, depending on the century and on the owner. Once the home of a hat and shoe merchant, this historical property on Salem's Derby Street now belongs to the House of Seven Gables Settlement Association. Today it functions as a museum and event location welcoming all through its doors to learn about the Salem-born author Nathaniel Hawthorne and life during the 1840s. Before there was a Hepzibah Pynchon from Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1851 novel, The House of the Seven Gables, there was John Turner, a son of an indentured servant from England. John Turner quickly stamped his mark on Salem, Massachusetts. He was an invested hat and shoe merchant, and by 1668 had amassed a large enough fortune to construct a new house. The original structure was simple in nature, with only two rooms and two and a half stories tall. 
but Turner was not content with just being a hat merchant. He worked in Salem's maritime field, becoming a captain, and accumulating more money than his neighbors would ever know what to do with. By the time of Turner's death in 1742, he was one of the most wealthy men in the entirety of Massachusetts Bay Colony. Unfortunately, the third generations of Turners in Salem lost the fortune, and the prized family home was sold in 1782 to Samuel Ingersoll. When Sea Captain Samuel Ingersoll took on the Turner house, it had grown exponentially from its original two-room dwelling. John Turner had later added a kitchen lean-to, a south wing to the house, and a two-story porch. He also added the secret staircase known to many thanks to Nathaniel Hawthorne's House of Seven Gables. But Samuel Ingersoll intended to fancy up the place even a little more. He removed the famed gables and exchanged them for intricate Victorian detail work, and the Turner House became the Turner Ingersoll Mansion. It was during the Ingersoll era that Samuel's daughter, Savannah, some records call her Susan, frequently invited her cousin, Nathaniel Hawthorne. The author of Haunted Salem once wrote that Turner and Ingersoll's House of Seven Gables is a, quote, ghostly reminder of shipping fortunes made and then lost, a bust blamed on the curse of the witch trials of 1692. But the Turner Ingersoll is a reminder of more than just lost shipping fortunes. It's also a blatant reminder of Nathaniel Hawthorne's guilt. It was Nathaniel's great-grandfather, John Hawthorne, who served as a judge during the Salem witch trials of 1692. As records show, Hawthorne may have feigned sympathy for the accused witches, but he never regretted his involvement in their trials and executions and he certainly never expressed any remorse during the trials themselves for sending the accused to their deaths. Much like the Turner family, the Ingersolls lost their mansion as well after three generations. Maybe that is a real curse. When Susanna's son, Horace, lost the family fortune and sold the house in 1879. In 1908, philanthropist Carolyn Emerton purchased the infamous Turner Ingersoll mansion with the intention of converting it into a museum. She hired the noted restoration architect, Joseph Everett Chandler, to handle all the renovation projects. Interestingly, Chandler had just come off a project of restoring the Paul Revere House in Boston. Under Caroline Emerton's instruction, Chandler brought back to life the eight, not seven, gables of the home, as well as to recreate Hepzibah Pynchon's scent shop featured in the book. Today, Turner and Ingersoll's House of the Seven Gables is much more than a single museum. Emerton purchased and moved all the other properties related to Nathaniel Hawthorne to the Turner Street location. When you visit the Turner Ingersoll, you are truly stepping back in time. So is the Turner Ingersoll haunted? Tour guides and employees tend to argue that the Turner Ingersoll is not haunted at all. But when asked if there are any spirits lurking around the house, they are quick to reply, nope, no ghosts here. But local lore has a different story to tell. And so do many of the visitors who enter Salem's House of Seven Gables. For many years, there have been a number of spirits reported at the mansion. In the famous secret staircase, visitors have witnessed the spirit of a man clambering up and down the stairs. Others report seeing a phantom boy who enjoys playing in the attic. Throughout the day, his little footsteps can be heard bouncing around upstairs as he giggles and laughs. According to one historian, the attic space once functioned as the servants' quarters for the property. Is it possible, then, that the ghostly boy is none other than one of the servants who once lived here? Others adamantly believe that the little boy is Julian, the son of Nathaniel Hawthorne. The last frequently seen specter at the House of the Seven Gables is none other than Susanna Ingersoll, Nathaniel Hawthorne's cousin. Her spirit has been spotted walking the halls of her former home and even peeking out of the windows to those who enter the estate through the garden below. 
In October 2006, one visitor named Christopher toured the Turner Ingersoll with his girlfriend. Unfortunately, they'd arrived too late, and the museum was already closed for the day. They stayed for a while anyway, snapping photos and genuinely enjoying the atmosphere of the property. The following day, they returned to Salem in the early evening to make sure they didn't miss the chance of a tour for the second day in a row. They checked in, and according to the story, never even knew the place was supposed to be haunted. When Christopher descended to the bottom of the infamous attic stairs, he heard the distinct sound of a woman's voice next to his ear. Shh, shh, the voice murmured. Christopher whipped around, expecting to see his girlfriend standing right there, but she wasn't. And apparently she was still a good four or five feet away, standing in the middle of the stairway, and she hadn't said a single word. The Witch House is the only surviving structure with direct ties to Salem's witch trials. Yet the haunts of the house extend past the hysteria. Purchased in 1675 by Judge Jonathan Corwin, magistrate of Salem's witch trials, the Witch House remained with the Corwins until the mid-1800s. The Corwin curse marked the house by 1718. Eight Corwin lives were lost to premature death, catastrophically crippling the Corwin estate. Rumor once held that the witch house was used for the trial's preliminary examinations, although this was later disproved. The witch house itself harbored no witches, though Judge Jonathan Corwin did execute the 19 charged with witchcraft. Even the mason of the house was accused and acquitted of witchcraft. But is the witch house, now a historic home of Essex County, haunted? And if so, by whom? The foundation of the witch house was established between 1620 and 1642, yet was left unfinished until Jonathan Corwin's purchase of the house in 1675. Corwin then had the partial construction remodeled by Daniel Andrews, improving the four-bedroom house with a six-foot stone-walled cellar. The building contract from February 19, 1675, reveals that the witch house was likely renovated to include five additional fireplaces on each floor of the two-and-a-half-story structure. Yet Daniel Andrews' affiliation with the witch house continues well past its architecture. Later accused of witchcraft by Thomas and Nathaniel Putnam, Andrews was swept up in the 1692 prosecutions. Andrews was, however, acquitted of witchcraft by the Reverend Cotton Mather. Corwin's participation in Andrews' acquittal is undocumented, though many believe that Corwin persuaded the prosecution. From 1684 to 1690, the witch house bore testimony to more tragedy. Jonathan and Elizabeth Corwin had five new children. All died young. John, born 1684, died at nine weeks of age. 
Margaret Corwin, born 1685, died at six months of age. Anna Corwin, born 1687, lived longer than her siblings, but suffered a premature death at the age of 19. Two additional deaths would occur by 1690, with the loss of Jonathan Corwin Jr. by his third month, and Herbert by his eighth week. Jonathan and Elizabeth Corwin continued to inhabit the home until 1717, yet were no longer the heads of household. The witch house was instead overseen by their son, the Reverend George Corwin. His oversight was interrupted by his, too, untimely death. Fever claimed the Reverend in November 1717, and then his wife in 1718. This fever likewise claimed Jonathan and Elizabeth. George Jr. and Samuel, a pair of young boys, were all that were left of the Corwin legacy. Samuel recounted the curse in a later journal, naming death as, quote, that unrelenting evening of mankind. The Corwin estate collapsed, yet the witch house remained. So what or who haunts the witch house? Those wrongly accused of witchcraft or those caught by the Corwin curse? Visitors to the witch house claim to hear disembodied voices. Some feel the chill of an unseen specter. The witch house holds more than the haunted, however. Inside a wall of the witch house, you will find a black shoe, a superstitious ritual to ward off witches. There are also witch bottles, a counter-magical instrument containing urine, hair, pins, and fingernails. The witch bottle, like the black shoe, would protect the house from evil. Yet unlike the black shoe, the witch bottle would capture evil before expelling it. The urine was thought to attract a witch, and the pins were thought to catch and contain her. Perhaps they thought the best way to deal with the witch was to join in her game. The witch house also possesses a poppet, a doll used for spell casting or, quote, sympathetic magic. The poppet, found in the nearby house of Bridget Bishop, the first woman executed in the Salem witch trials, may retain residual energies from the trials themselves. How could it not? In 1957, the state of Massachusetts apologized for the Salem witch trials, and in 1992, 300 years after the trials, the Witch Trials Memorial in Salem was dedicated by Nobel Laureate, author, and Holocaust survival, Elie Wiesel. The memorial plot stands surrounded by an old stone wall. Built into the wall, and encircling the plot of land, are stone benches, each carved with the names and dates of those executed or perished in jail, under witchcraft accusations. Since none of their bodies have been recovered, these benches are all that remain to remember them by. This has been an episode of When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. Written, researched, and edited by your host, Jeremy Hegg. Please don't forget to share this podcast, subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes, and rate the show wherever you listen. As a one-man operation, your support and feedback mean the world to me and helps more listeners find our stories. Please don't forget to visit my website, www.whenwallscantalktarot.com, to learn more about me, the show, and to purchase our brand new merch finally available on our online shop. Listeners to the podcast get an exclusive 10% off using the code WITCHCREW at checkout. Don't forget to reach out to me on Instagram at whenwallscantalk with underscores for spaces or email me at jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com. 
So long, paranormal adventures, and I will see you next time on When Walls Can Talk.